So welcome everyone to the concluding panel of uh, what has been so far a wonderful uh, day. We are concluding with uh, another very powerful group of uh, Hong Kong's maritime leadership, uh, sharing with us their insight on navigating through industry transformation. These are companies that are based in Hong Kong, operating in the global markets, uh, and um, we look forward to having their insight on the major industry topics. Uh, I'd like to thank um, Vikrant, Bing, William, and Mats, and of course, um, thank you very much to Norbert for being the expert moderator. So I will turn it over to Norbert and welcome you all, and thank you for being with us. Well, thank, thank you, you Nicholas, for the nice uh, introduction. And uh, good evening to all of you, and a very warm welcome to the panel on navigating through industry transformation. I really feel honored and uh, happy to moderate this high-level panel. The marine industry is uh, in the early stages of transition from more than a century-long reliance on fossil-based fuels. Prodded by societal expectations, regulators continue to keep up the pressure on the marine industry with increasingly strict emission guidelines. At the same time, digitalization and automation are about to revolutionize the maritime logistics chain with new players coming in, challenging the way we have worked for several decades. The Black Swan event of COVID-19 has turbocharged this process even more. But the shipping industry has shown that it can rise to this challenge and virtual forums like this year today are a testimony to this. Despite the many difficulties we all face in these unprecedented times, there are also a lot of opportunities. And uh, I'm very happy to have uh, top executives from uh, various companies in my panel here today. So let me introduce the panelists to you. We are with us, Bing Cheng. He is the president and CEO of Atlas Corporation and C-SPAN. Then we have uh, Vikram Bhatia, he is CEO of KC Maritime Hong Kong. Then we have with us here Mats Berglund, he is the CEO and Executive Director of Pacific Basin Shipping Limited. And last but not least, William Fertler, he is Managing Director of Wakwong Maritime Transport Holdings. So gentlemen, I think we uh, simply start into our panel discussion and uh, firstly I have a question uh, to all of you. How far can the wider ecosystem and supply chain of shipping connect with each other once the various players have progressed on their digital journeys? What would be the perfect scenario in your view? Maybe Bing, you'd like to start with this uh, question? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, with the, uh, with the, uh, the, the, the change that is happening, I think that uh, definitely has uh, impact uh, to the to the you know to the to the supply chain, I think uh, first of all we see the political impact, um, and I think that you see a lot of uh, media and countries that has uh, you know has uh, has the you know different views on this. But uh, for us, we see the impact is more on the trade side, specifically on the container shipping sector. We see the trading pattern has changed. Uh, before maybe it's a country to country. But now, because of these, um, you know, the the, the uh, I would say that the so-called the trade dispute, 
there's a lot of, um, I think, uh, a change in terms of the pattern. Uh, this is really because uh, we see that at the end of the day, uh, the global trade is still there um, because, you know, to change the supply chain, uh, it takes the time and also takes a lot of capital. Uh, it's not something that you can change overnight. So therefore, with the with these uh, you know discussions that's ongoing amongst the uh, you know politicians, um, I think the uh, the impact is is we see the the, the mostly is in actually the increase of activities um, in, in in particularly in the trade pattern. For example, before you might see the goods has been shipped from China directly to the U.S. Now you will see the goods has been you know first of all shipped to from China to another country, for example, in Southeast country, and then from there to the United States through the reassembling or, or packaging. So overall, I, I think that um, this is something that's gonna, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be there for, for, for a long time because the political reasons. But on the other hand, if we're looking at, um, you know, from the, from the last year's, uh, the trade war, uh, and also including this year, you have the uh, Brexit, um, and I think from our discussions with the liners, I think they see as actually is also part of the contributions, the current increase in demand because of, you know, with the uncertainty of the Brexit, uh, as a lot of, uh, you know, uh, the buyers and sellers is to try to, you know, rush these uh, trans transport within the time. So uh, overall, I, I would think that, um, you know, from an industry standpoint, uh, there is an impact, but the impact is this increased activities. Right, very good. Bing, uh, thank you so much for your great insights. And uh, Mats, what is uh, your view on that? Well, on uh, the supply chain, I think for the dry bulk market, it has shown uh, extremely good adaptability, so to speak. Uh, as you know, dry bulk is primarily a, uh, a tramp trade. So I think the, the business, the industry has an enormous ability to, to adapt to uh, whether it's new tariffs or, or new uh, regulations. Uh, we, we really adapt uh, well and quickly. Um, you know, one country is shut off as a supplier for various reasons. Uh, we we uh, move it from somewhere else. Uh, I think we also have to... Uh, highlight and thank our crews on board all the ships for really being uh, loyal and uh, staying on board the ships in spite of not being able to uh, to be relieved right i know that's been discussed on the panel before but it's worth mentioning again you asked for the you know what's the perfect scenario well the perfect scenario is that we get less trade wars and more free free trade going forward Right. Thank you, Mats, for this uh, very good answer. And uh, well, uh, Rikla, nice to have you also in our panel. We met often in uh, Hong Kong already. So uh, what is your view? Maybe there are some, I think, unmute. He's maybe, Rikla, I think you have to unmute. Otherwise, maybe I think we, we first start uh, and go ahead with the... Uh, well, sorry, can you hear me now? Now it's very good. Perfect. All right, okay. Yeah, so, uh, sorry, now, just now some, some technology yours. issues. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so <laughs> I would uh, echo really what uh, Bing and, and Matt had to say. Uh, 
you know, the supply chains, uh, the dry bulk industry has been surprisingly resilient uh, through the uh, through the whole sort of COVID cycle that that we've experienced so far, and. Uh, uh, it, it's it's probably one demonstration, you know, that despite you know pandemics, despite wars, despite you know trade issues, that uh, you know demand for goods is still going to be there, and uh, you know we need to, uh, as Matt said, you know adapt to to meet that demand for goods. Certainly, at a macro level, I think we'll see more regionalization in trade, uh, growth in in that area. Uh, Matt spoke about the crew that's, you know, being an ex-seafarer myself, it's really heartbreaking to see some of these people having to, you know, be away for so many months uh, at, at, you know, when, when you went away from their families, away from the, who, who are probably, you know, in, in countries which are facing the big, uh, you know, a big grunt uh, of COVID or a big impact from COVID. So, uh, you know, I, th I think most of the responsible owners have been doing what they can, uh, given the, the the regulations, given the limitations, in trying to 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 carry out you know successful crew changes. Uh, I'll you know I'll leave the floor open for other people to to speak for for now, but that that's what I have to say. Well, thank you so much, uh, Vikram. So, uh, William, what is uh, your view on this uh, topic? Thank you, Norbert. I think I will focus more on the digitalization part, which is, I think, the overwhelming, sort of overriding uh, theme of, of this panel, rather than going back on sort of market discussions, which I think have been done elsewhere. And I think from a digitalization perspective, obviously, the pandemic has fast forwarded a lot of our use of technology, our application and our, the way that we, we, we think of technology. I think one of the exceptions, and I think somewhere where maybe I'm um, sort of not speaking in, in, in the same sort of sense as the, the trend seems to suggest, is that the actual vessels themselves, I think, uh, are a little bit still left behind on, on this part of the journey, because we've all seen that as the pandemic has made traveling impossible, the connectivity we have is really astounding and the, the, the ability to do so many of the jobs we thought we, we, we may not be able to do remotely, we, we can basically do them all. Um, and, and that is because we all have, you know, connectivity that we've really got used to, the broadband connectivity that supports all of this information flow from A to B. I think ships themselves, and I've been looking at this a little bit more recently, for various different reasons, because there's the environmental piece, which I think we might come on to later, but this is actually a quite a good platform just to stimulate um, the collection and processing and of data because we have so many challenges on that front. But if you just take it back to the actual vessels themselves, uh, effectively the connectivity of most vessels at sea is similar to the connectivity we had on land in 2003, 2004 in Hong Kong, which in other words is just, just a little bit better than a sort of dial up internet connection. And as we all know, the proliferation of applications have completely changed our lives over the last decade. And I think the iPhone is just over 10 years old, maybe 12 years old. That really came when we had much better access to stable broadband and that is still denied most ships. The technology is, is frankly not there. 
you know, you have maybe two megabytes a second and it's not necessarily that stable. So to my mind, there is a huge technology revolution that will take place on the ship, but it won't happen until we have sort of blanket fast connectivity, which is available everywhere in the middle of nowhere. And I think that will stimulate the, the digital sort of revolution for ships themselves. I think at the moment, most of the, the sort of digital um, revolution, if you like, is, is constrained to you know, what we do, which doesn't involve um, you know, constant supply of information to and from the ship. Very good, William. And uh, well, I think we have uh, for sure some time also for more individual questions to you. And uh, Bing, maybe I'd like to start with you with a question. So uh, C-SPAN is dedicated on uh, long-term relations with your customers and you are focused on container vessels. So uh, container transport over the last 20 years has almost doubled its volume. Looking to the recent geopolitical environment, this negative impact from the trade war between US and China and uh, in what direction do you see the container trade will be heading and uh, how would decarbonization impact uh, your container fleet? Thanks, Norbert. Um, you know, for container sector, actually, we see a very strong uh, development and particularly over the past six months. Um, as as uh, the, the panelists just you know, talk about in terms of other sectors within the shipping, uh, including Drybock and others. But for container shipping, it's actually quite different in the sense today, if we're looking at the entire market, we have really no more than 10 liners. And this is a significant development over the past three, four years with the liners consolidation. Uh, you know, three, four years ago, you have over 30 companies, liner companies. And today you only really have 10. Out of these 10, uh, about eight accounts for 85% of the market. So this is a major, major development in this, in this sector. On top of that, you also have the alliances, uh, similar to that of airlines, among these uh, liner companies. So from a, from a demand side today, I, I think the liner uh, is, is very well you know, uh, I would say disciplined and focused on delivering the quality of service to their end customer. At the same time, we're talking about from the demand side, actually, you know, even with the COVID, the demand actually for this year, according to the industry, uh, analysts forecast for this year, initially they forecasted the volume is going to be down about 12%. But now they're saying that, uh, you know, uh, this year the volume will still be roughly about the same, maybe 2% down than last year. So the demand is quite, uh, you know, strong. And this demand is really, we're talking about it earlier in terms of the, uh, you know, the, the change of pattern, which is driven by this supply chain and driven by the, you know, the, the trade uh, tension. But that, you know, that actually contributes to part of this uh, strong demand. The other part of the demand is it really is what we have seen uh, by, by talking to the line of customers is that really the cross-border e-commerce. Cross-border e-commerce basically saying that you and I these days, we're going to order from Amazon, for example. But at the same time, you know, when we order things, for example, from Hong Kong, the goods actually shipped from Amazon United States but that is still manufactured in China. 
So therefore, you see this type of increased activity on top of the traditional, for example, Walmart, the type of, uh, you know, uh, uh, merchandising. So that is the part of the consumer behavior change that increased the volume. Um, and then from the supply standpoint today, the overall container shipping industry, the order book is still at the historically low level. Uh, right now, still at the approximately 12 to 15% of the overall industry capacity. And as you know, usually the vessels takes about two to three years to build. So every year you have about, you know, the, the new delivery in terms of the tonnage about the overall market is about, you know, three to 4%. So the, the supply side is very much, uh, you know, still very much uh, in, in discipline. Uh, on, the, on the same time, the demand side um, is, is still very strong. So therefore, uh, you know, we see currently, and particularly currently, it's actually a lot, uh, you know, a lot uh, a demand, but at the same time, the supply is very limited, which is reflected in, into this historically high, historically high charter rates across the, the, the sectors, and also as a shortage of vessels. So uh, we see this is actually is going to continue for some time, uh, because the fundamental of the market has changed. And also with the demand supply balances, temporarily right now, it's a shortage of supply. Um, I, I would think that uh, the market is going to have a very, uh, I would say, rather strong 2021. Thank you so much, uh, Bing. And uh, I think it's really amazing to see what is uh, right now happening in the container business, especially this year. You said there was a we say prediction it will go down, but it stays stable. And uh, now I think all the liners are reporting really good results for uh, 2020 so far. Well, thank you so much, uh, Bing. And then, uh, uh, Mats, maybe I'd like to come back to you with one question. Uh, Pacific Basin is one of the forerunners in the shipping industry. And the moving towards digitalization will help uh, for sure to improve efficiency and timely decisions. Such changes will involve a lot of challenges and resistance. And as an earlier doctor, how do you see, uh, resolve these issues and uh, how do you see technology will impact the future of shipping? Thank you, Norbert. Uh, we actually don't see that much resistance, but a lot of people are quite uh, you know, excited about it. So, and the areas where we see see uh, digitalization having an impact, maybe first I'd like to highlight uh, that we're hoping it and believing it will lead to safety improvements, as you know, uh, Nor, but uh, maybe we can use data and technology to prevent incidents uh, and, you know, see the warning signals, uh, maybe of both machinery and people before an accident happens, which would be a great uh, you know, achievement, and we think that will, that will happen. The second thing uh, we believe uh, will happen and is happening is a bit of gradual automation, uh, both on board and uh, on the, in, in the office, maybe quicker in the office. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, RPA for some, uh, you know, invoice handling and so on. We will get some efficiencies out of it maybe a little bit slower on board, uh, partly for the reasons uh, uh, William uh, mentioned. But then the third uh, kind of aspect of digitalization, I think is commercially, uh, where more data is already used for 
market intelligence purposes. And, you know, what I'm talking about is uh, AIS information for vessel positions, you know, cargo data, commodity intelligence, etc. And uh, this is leading to, we believe, less secrets in the market, more transparency. And maybe that will make it harder for an asset light only company to squeeze out the margin between the owner and, and the shipper. So those are three aspects of the digitalization that we see uh, is already coming and already happening. Right, very good, uh, Mats. Uh, I think very good uh, insights uh, from uh, your side. And uh, well, I think then uh, I'd like to continue with uh, uh, Vikrant. Uh, Vikrant, I, you are one of the uh, insiders also in their uh, bulk business for sure and the uh, tank. And I guess you're also aware that uh, recently Anglo-American as a charterer contracted with Yuming uh, for several LNG fueled uh, bulk carriers in uh, China. And on the other hand, also BHP contracted with their EPS from Singapore, again for uh, LNG-fueled uh, ships. Also some ultra-large container ships ordered recently are equipped with uh, gas as fuel. So uh, from your perspective, what you see, this is the dawn of a new trend to move away from uh, diesel fuel? Uh, thank you for the, for the question, Norbert. Uh, you know, it's timely. A couple of days ago, uh, Clarkson actually released some data on uh, the, you know, the tracking of technology in fuel transition. And it shows that roughly, say, 200 new buildings on order of all types of vessels other than pure LNG carriers are dual fitted for LNG. And this will add to the 200 similar, 200 similar types of vessels that are already you know, operating in, uh, on the water. Now, if you take all these, you know, 500 or or ships, uh, uh, just under 500 or just over 500 or ships, uh, it's only three and a half percent of the global fleet. So the numbers are still still very small to 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 make a, a significant impact. Now, if you look at the at the new building stage, uh, typically, you know, for for medium-sized ships and large ships, uh, the fitting of a dual fuel engine is roughly say $7 million and north of that. Now, those numbers are not supported commercially in the market. So it comes as no surprise, you know, uh, Dr. Tristan Smith, who works, at, who's, who's a professor at UCL, uh, he does a lot of work on the decarbonization of ships, is closely involved with the GMF, and I, I, I get to talk to him occasionally. Uh, you know, he did a study which, which demonstrated that actually the LNG ships uh, or dual-fitted LNG ships only uh, are being implemented really on the time-chartered fleet rather than the spot trades. So it, it lends itself to vessels that uh, are on point-to-point -point trades, uh, you know, like uh, the large Newcastle Maxes in, in which are doing Australia, China, or VLCCs or tankers or, or ferries or, 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 or cruise ships. Now, look at what's happening in industry. Maersk has been very vocal about its rejection of LNG as a, as a, a, even as a, as, as a transitionary fuel. And I think some of their uh, thoughts come from you know, the ICCT, uh, which is a well-respected body and NGO uh, led by an ex-EPA uh, director, which has clearly demonstrated in, in a working paper and studies that from wake to well over say a 20 year period, 
and which is a typical life of an LNG uh, of of a, of a vessel. That the emissions on an LNG ship are actually more than that on uh, when you compare them with a fuel oil ship. So, you know, then there you know you get your your beg the question is that you know why are why are people why are people doing this? You know, again, LNG you know studies have shown that the dual fuel LNG engines uh, only start to make commercial sense when. Fuel oil, when 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 there's a when there's a price spread between say the Henry Hub and 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 fuel oil prices, that price spread has all has all but disappeared. In fact, it's it's more it may be even more expensive to run on 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 LNG today, yeah, because just to break even, you need oil at roughly sixty two dollars a barrel, and we we all know that you know the 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 price of oil today is more like forty five. And even if you look at the forward curve, it's 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 still you know in, in below fifty dollars. So there is, it begs the question, you know, is that why are people why are people putting this this these LNG ships? Uh, I think I think that it's a combination of uh, of of uh, large organizations wanting to sh wanting to tout or push forward their green agenda without actually looking at the whole LNG life cycle of, of, of producing the LNG. Uh, shale is a, a big producer of LNG and it's notorious for its, for its methane slip. But at the same time, you know, you ask the question is, will LNG be a transitionary fuel? You know, even though I'm not in favor of it, uh, I say, I, you know, I, I admit that it will be a transitionary fuel. Why? Because there's no credible uh, uh, option at the moment uh, to, you know, LNG does have a 25% reduc reduction in CO2, while it may have more uh, methane emissions. There's no uh, credible option to that. And you can certainly see that because, you know, you're seeing, uh, you know, more LNG bunkering, more LNG, uh, uh, port, more ports able to handle more LNG. But again, you know, uh, I'll end by saying, just like scrubbers, the only thing green about using LNG is the color of the money they expect to make. Thank you. All right, thank you, Vikram, for your very interesting uh, insights. And uh, I mean, this is a very hot topic uh, about LNG as fuel. Is it uh, a permanent solution or more a transitional fuel? What we as DMVGL say. So, and I think we can uh, talk for several hours to, and will not maybe find even uh, fully. Uh, satisfying answer to that. Anyway, thank you, Vikrant, for this uh, very interesting uh, insights. So, William, then I'd like to come uh, to you. Uh, you are the managing director of uh, Wakwong, and uh, the Internet of Things and uh, AI become a more and more mature technology and is available in the market. The amount of data that generated with the center of technology provide overwhelming amount of operational data. Uh, there are some digital tools on the ship management available in the market uh, and they have various features. In your opinion, how would you like to see these tools should be further developed? Thank you, Norbert. The internet of things, it's something we hear a lot about. I keep hearing about refrigerators that will order milk when you're running low. I've yet to meet anyone who's actually got one. Uh, I'm told they're coming, but um, there's no doubt that the connectivity between industrial equipment
equipment is quite a long way ahead. We all know about Teslas that can sort of download software updates that mean they can do things tomorrow that they couldn't do yesterday. And I do think eventually we're going to get to that sort of place with, with vessels. And, and I talked a little bit earlier about what, what the, the sort of um, bottleneck is there. But what I would like to see um, all this data used for and the proliferation of technology is actually very much a follow on for what Vic, Vic Grant has just been talking about is I think we need to be measuring, especially emissions data, but so much of the um, you know, targets that we're going to set ourselves over the next decade have to be driven by much better information as to how we measure our real emissions. And as, as Bitcoin very eloquently just explained, you know, this debate about LNG as a fuel, there should, you know, we, we need to establish one way or the other. And so everybody can acknowledge that it's either a good thing or a bad thing, a step forward or a step back. And that is something that is now eminently possible if we trace the full supply chain and we use the technology available to us to track each stage of the supply chain from the spade going into the mine to dig up the iron ore in Brazil, through on the ship to the steel mill, into the factory, onto one of Bing's liner vessels, straight into Amazon, to the shops where somebody's gonna pick up a washing machine, let's say, for example. Now, that whole supply chain needs to be tracked. We need to understand, consumers need to understand what are the implications of them buying that piece of equipment. And when I talk about the implications, I don't mean whether or not it's going to wash their clothes properly. I mean, what are the implications on the environment? What, are, what is the carbon footprint of that supply chain? And in order for us to all get to that stage, we need to work right from the beginning all the way through. And technology is what enables us to do that. In fact, in a way that technology is now available that has never been available to us before to make this eminently possible. We talk about blockchain. I'm not an expert in terms of I'm I'm certainly no blockchain architect, but I know that it is a ledger that is in effect a digital but indelible ledger that can actually help you track each stage of the supply chain. And we need to measure as an industry, we should have probably been doing it a lot better than we are, but we've got the wake up call. I think there's um, no doubt that our minds are all focused now. We have 10 years, we have 2030, and we have some targets to meet as an industry. And we need to work up and down the supply chain. And I think, you know, you have Bing, who's much closer to the consumer. The liner companies are dealing with a lot of the big apparel makers and a lot of the consumer facing um, companies that actually get a lot of pressure from consumers now. And they're starting to get a lot of pressure from consumers for that sort of information. At our end of the market where we're shipping raw materials, it's still, you know, we're, we're quite sheltered from that. We're very much business to business. But what we think that we all need to be doing is reaching up the supply chain and they reach down and to make that information really evident to everybody who is at the end of the, um, that chain, which is the consumers, all of us, you know, when we go and buy something. And, and, and I think if shipping could do something in the next two or three years, because as Vicky said, you know, are we going to come up with a low carbon, zero carbon form of propulsion in the next 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years. It's debatable. I mean, you could sit, as you said, talk about this for, 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 for hours. And the reality is, no, there's no obvious answer. But what we can all do is make sure that we use technology to measure every stage of the impact we're having as, a, as an industry 
And by the way, if we chose to do something about that, for example, if we chose to offset the entire carbon emissions of the supply chain, the cost to each individual piece of consumer you know, stuff that was being bought would be tiny, it would be hardly noticeable. But forget about that. Let's start by really using the technology, get a good picture of, of, of what the impact is we're having. And then we can address, address the best way to, 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 to go forward. Well, thank you so much, uh, William. Great uh, insights from, from uh, your side. And uh, I think we have still some uh, minutes left now. I have to watch on my screen whether there are some uh, questions from the audience who are, I think, uh, joining us globally. I think there are several hundred people joining us uh, right now. And uh, uh, to me, it looks like there are right now maybe no questions from the uh, audience. I think, uh, anyway, the time is uh, flying and the uh, time is also uh, more or less uh, up. And I'd like to thank all of you for your great uh, insight and uh, the really fruitful discussion uh, tonight here. And it seems that we all agree that shipping is in the midst of a transformation process, which is offering more opportunities than uh, posing really burdens to us. And when we work together with an open mind and embrace the challenges, we can turn them into opportunities. By leveraging scale, innovation, cooperation, and uh, transparency, we now have the chance to set in motion, I think, a maritime renaissance. And my suggestion would just, let's do it. And well, I think then uh, this uh, brings us to the end, and I really look forward to seeing you personally in, uh, Hong, Kong, in Hong Kong, hopefully sooner than later. And uh, then uh, thank you again, and uh, stay safe and uh, sound. Thank you so much. Thank you to everybody. It's been a, a, a great panel and a great way to close our forum today. Uh, overall, it's been a great day. And um, I hope uh, that we were able to portray uh, all the strengths and advantages of Hong Kong to a global uh, audience. So thank you to everybody for your support and participation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Norbert. Thank you, Nicholas.